Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning on this Monday, the 27th of June, 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. On Friday morning, we didn't stay on the air long enough. That's my uh, that's my two cents on the matter, um, because it was 10 a.m. Eastern Time Friday that we learned that the February draft of the Supreme Court opinion authored by Justice Samuel Alito was, in fact, largely the final opinion of the court uh, in the Dobbs case. Which um, set aside the precedent set in 1973 by the Supreme Court in a case well known as Roe v. Wade. Uh, It also set aside subsequent decisions, including um, one related to the name Casey. Anyway, depending on where you live and the people with whom you spend your time, your weekend was either deeply affected or not affected at all by what is arguably the most important moral decision the court has made in 50 years. Now, it's important to point out that the court did not say abortion is illegal in the United States of America. It did not make abortion illegal. It returned the decisions related to abortion to the states. So I want to talk about it over the course of time. Um, We're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about it in the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead because there are myriad threads to pull and lots of related topics to discuss. So let me tell you a couple of things we're not going to get to today. We're not going to get to the effect of the decision in every state. We're not going to get to every potentiality. We are not going to get to that which cannot now be known. Um, And for those of you who have sent me uh, storylines and questions like, what does this, uh, how will this affect the creation and then the destruction of embryos related to IVF and surrogacy? We're not getting to that today. Um, We will not get to the unresolved but very relevant issue of chemical abortion and the distribution of those drugs through the U.S. mail. We will um, deal with each one of those topics and every other topic related to this topic as time unfolds. Today, I want to deal with the right affect. I want to deal with how we feel. How should Christians feel and think about these things? And then how should Christians rightly respond uh, to those who feel differently? If you want to know what we're talking about today, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how God sees all of this and therefore how I as a Christian see all of this. Um, What is the affect of God in relationship to these things? God is the maker and the giver of life. Um, He sees our unformed parts. He knits us together in our mother's wombs. He knows each of us from the foundation of the earth. He ordains each life. And so how does God see and feel about the decision of a panel of judges who have not said, who have not said abortion is immoral and contrary to who we are as we the people, but instead have said abortion is not a right expressly guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States and the availability of abortion will be governed by the laws of each of the states where democratically elected representatives 
are going to create laws aligned more closely with the people who live there. So this decision does not outlaw abortion in America. Let's be really clear about that. The decision does not stop women from seeking and having abortions. It does not make access to an abortion um, impossible. It may make it more difficult for some women in some places. How does God see all of that? And therefore, how then do I as a Christian see all of that? Um, There is so much going on in relationship to this that we're going to spend much time on this topic today. But I think starting out, what I want to do is spend some time with Dave Buring. We're going to talk about the character and the ways of God. And then we're going to return to a conversation later in the hour um, on this topic of the Supreme Court decision and its impacts and effects in the culture. Um, But how do we live as the people of God, a people after God's own heart in the midst of all of it? That's what we're going to talk about next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. the God and Father of all. We're going to talk about God as Father and the Father's heart of God. Dave Buring is back. Good morning, friend. Good morning. How are you this morning? I I am well. I am well. There are peaches uh, ripening on the trees and uh, our blueberry bushes are laden with fruit. So, wow, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. That's That's the Monday farm. Yeah, I know that's the Monday farm report. Normally I only give a farm report on Friday. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk with you about um, the ways of God, the character of God as father. Um, mm. We just recently celebrated Father's Day, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that everyone turned their attention to the heart of of the father um, in the midst of all of that. And so I thought that maybe you and I could talk about that today. Yeah, it's a it's a um, big deal, I think, Carmen, when it comes to trying to view God through a proper set of lenses. And, you know, the way that I think God made it was such that as a family, you grew up with this mother and this father and both mom and dad help you get a early head start on what God is like. And uh, I have found over the years, not only in my life, but in, you know, speaking to various folks that the image that you carry around of of your parents and particularly your father spills into your first vantage point of God. The good news, it doesn't have to be our last, right? But it is our first. And so oftentimes the way that we related to our father or didn't relate to our father and whether there was kindness and godly discipline and generosity and love, to that same degree, we tend to transfer it to how we view God. And uh, the the good news, again, is we don't have to stay there. We can take the scriptures and say, okay, what do the scriptures actually say that God is like? When, when, when I think about um, the way we misunderstand God because of the brokenness of human relationships, I mean, maybe mm-hmm. the first thing that comes to mind is like, right, people, like, people actually don't experience a dad at all. They, yeah. they 
they experience themselves as functionally fatherless and God uh, or their father as functionally absent. And therefore, they imagine that God is absent and they imagine that God is not really their father, not not in a way that is worthy of the calling. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it's a it's a difficult road. I just had a, a guy yesterday. I spoke at our church, and when I was done, he came up to me in tears. Probably a man. I'm 62. will be 63 here shortly, and about my age. And he he had tears, and and I said, "You okay?" And he said, "I'm not." And I said, "What's going on?" He said, "I'm I'm realizing how much my relationship with my dad has impacted my life, even to this point in my life, and I I need to find a place of freedom." And, you know, we agreed that, you know, later we would have a a conversation about that. And I I run into that a lot. And, you know, in my own journey, too, I'm very grateful for the things that my dad laid into my life. And then there's other areas I've had to be, if I can use the phrase, reparented by God and be able to look at things differently. And I think that the healthy approach on this is to be able to say, okay, what are the good things you know, like, for example, you know, did your dad provide for you? Did you never have to worry about food and clothes, clothing and shelter? And so, OK, he provided for me. Was there certain things he did for you that were, you know, beneficial to your life or phrases he would use that as you rehearse them were really healthy for you and helpful? And then there's the other side of it. Where is the fail? Where is there recognizing, as you just said a moment ago, we all have human failings. There's never a dad that's perfect. My own kids would say, hey, I love my dad. He gave me these things, but here's some areas where he fell short. Every one of us is going to have those because we're human beings. Thus, we need to kind of turn our attention to, all right, what does the Bible say about God as our father? Mm-hmm. And so what does the Bible say about God being our father? I think, well, so let's let's yeah. pause there. Let's pause yeah. there and then let's come back to that, because I do think that simply walking through yeah. verses that reveal the character and the ways of God uh, as yeah. he is our heavenly father um, are just so helpful. So I'd love for you to draw us in okay. um, to God as father in just a moment. We're talking with Dave Buring from Lion Share. And we're talking about um, the the father heart of God. Who is God as our father? We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Run to the father. Continuing our conversation with Dave Buring from Lion Share. We're talking about um, God, our Father, and the heart of God, the Father. Dave, let's um, let's use some passages of Scripture to illuminate and reveal the Father heart of God. Okay, I'd love to. So let me begin with one that uh, I really like. It's Isaiah nine six. It's the one we hear at Christmas time all the time. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, which means Counselor of Wonders, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I think one of the key things for us to realize is the scriptures teach us that he is our everlasting father, meaning he's not going to leave us. He's yeah. going to be be everlasting. And, and for a lot of us, we've had fathers that whether physically or emotionally have left us. It's a wonderful thing for us to recognize that. He is our everlasting father. 
and he, he will always be present. You know, Psalm 139 talks about him always being present. He's, he's, the scriptures teach us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And uh, even though life leaves us, people in life leave us, he is an everlasting father. I also like, um, you know, where Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, our father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. The, the idea there, too, is he is our father. It, it's interesting that Jesus didn't start that prayer with my father. It's our mm-hmm. father. And, uh, and it's one of the things that I think we need to realize is that even if we're not recognizing his fathering of us, he's doing that. There, there's a great book, and this one's particularly aimed Carmen at men, but it's called Fathered by God by John Eldridge. It's a book that I've taken dozens of men through, and it, it begins to help us um, not blame fathers in our lives, for what they couldn't do, but instead he points to how God instead has been there, you know, for us. So, you know, the scriptures teach us God knows everything about us, like how many hairs we have on our head. He's that intimately involved. Um, He's affectionate towards us. Like one of the things we need to realize is he fusses over us. He's affectionate Mm. towards us. Um, Again, most of us know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave God's love is a giving, self-sacrificial love, not a taking, selfish love. So, you know, when we just kind of start on these things, I think those are some of the places where I go right away. The term um, lavishes um, jumped out at me in this passage from Deuteronomy 33, that God is affectionate toward us and lavishes mm-hmm. his love mm-hmm. upon us. First John, mm-hmm. um, First John yeah. 3, I heard my pastor talk about Unless I heard you talk about it, because I've listened to you this weekend and I've listened to my mm-hmm. pastor, Scott Patty. So one of the two of you used this illustration of the the way that waves just continue to lap over and over and over and over mm. and over again. And mm. that's the lavishness. Like mm. you're lavish. It's not like you get one serving. It's not like you get a few servings. It's lavished. His love yeah. is lavished upon us. I'm yeah. not sure that everyone thinks about God as father in that way. I think that more often we have a tendency to think about God, um, our father as like stern rule keeper, you know, yes, dispenser of blessings, but maybe not in a very lavish way, but that's not who God is. I mean, God as father is lavishing his love upon us. Yeah. And I think it's learning to connect the dots Carmen, you're like, you know, cause someone could say, yeah, well, my life sucks and this happened and I'm losing my job. And, you know, my dog died and, you know, all these things in our lives that are going on. And, and it's, it, there really is a shifting of lenses that, that begins to happen. Um, you know, sometimes we can get caught and we've talked about this in prior shows about relinquishing our rights. We can get stuck in our entitlements and our rights and things on our timetable. And, and, and there's times where we have to pause and go, okay, and let, let me, take a look at this. For example, and I, and I know I'm going back to real basics here, but last night when I laid my head down on my pillow, I didn't once think about, okay, how am I going to keep my heart beating? Like, how am I going to do that? And how am I going to make sure I'm breathe when I'm in sleep, going to breathe in sleep mode? I don't have to do that. It's like, it's like my father in heaven loves me and says, I got you. I got you on those things. You don't have to worry about that stuff. You know, and uh, when I woke up this morning, you know, I didn't even think about, but yet, 
you know, I took a deep breath, just kind of breathing air into my lungs and realizing he has provided me not only with good air to breathe, but he's with lungs to be able to take it in. I know that later on when I, you know, have breakfast today that these little things called taste buds are going to come alive as I put, you know, maybe uh, avocado toast, you know, with some, mm. you know, uh, everything but the bagel stuff on it. You know, my, my taste buds will do the happy dance because they're going to like what it, it's going. And, and, and there's just some things like that that I think we, we forget to pause, eyes to see, ears to hear, the ability to touch, um, and realizing that God has cared for us so significantly that the basic, common, everyday life things that we have, we forget to connect the dots that, oh yeah, he did that. And, and I think when we start in places like that, or uh, let me throw one other one at you. It, it's like when there is something that you have hoped for, longed for, really desired for a long time, and it happens I hear the people, even followers of Jesus, I was so lucky that none of this had to do with luck. This had to do that you were really hoping for a dark blue Honda Civic that you could get at a certain price. And when you showed up to, to you know, exchange your car, so to speak, trade it in, there's this, the guy says, hey, you won't believe this. There was a blue Honda Civic X amount of miles at this price that, that, just was brought in this morning. And, and, and I hear people say, man, I'm so lucky. No, <laughs> no, that, that's where we need to connect the dots and realize you had a heavenly father who knows the desires of your heart and he dropped it off there just for you. Mm-hmm. And, and when then you start unraveling all the circumstances that had to lead up behind that to make that happen, he fusses over us. And I, so I think a lot of it has to do with having a little different vantage point. So as I was um, considering this and um, thinking about how I first learned to pray each night before I went to sleep, um, mm-hmm. my my parents, right, I mean, clearly taught me this prayer because it's not a prayer that as a little child I would have conceived of on my own. But as you were saying, you know, when I lay down at night, I don't have to think about breathing. I don't have to yeah. think about like, right. So yeah. and that immediately stoked this memory that this, that I prayed this prayer every night. Like I, I remember it as a child. Um, mm. uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray yeah. the Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord, my soul to take. And then um, Dave, I would um, announce the litany of my prayer concerns, which included my mommy and daddy and my other mommy and daddy and my other mommy and daddy. <laughs> My mom, my mom said, like in describing that later, she's like, you know, that would have that would have made some parents like concerned, like she sees, you know, these other people as on par with me. But that was like Letha and Wilbur, who took care of me in the afternoon because both my parents were professionals. (laughs) And and that was um, Julian Gay. And that was I mean, like, right. My my quote unquote other mommy and daddy and my other mommy and daddy were these adults in my life who I (laughs) relied on for certain things. So I think that um, I think that I have um, I have a a formed thinking. Right. I was formed by that prayer in Mm. ways that and in the way that my parents responded to my prayers for other people that at that point I kind of viewed as on par with them. Um, Yeah. And and so I feel so blessed to have that as, uh, you know, as my heritage. 
And I also recognize there's just a lot of little kids not being taught to pray with that kind of confidence in God and that kind of assurance in a safe place to lay their head. And that there, it's not just one set of mommy and daddy, but there's lots of people who are going to care for you well in this world. Um, and so I think that my heart is tenderized today, both in gratitude and in concern for, you know, gratitude for my own experience, but also deep concern for the experience of others. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm with you in that. And I think it's one of the places that how how can we seed thoughts of God's heart into the lives of people. And I think, you know, on any given day, the people that you encounter and I encounter, it's the hand on the shoulder, it's the look in the eye, and it's this, hey, hey, I know this is really difficult for you, but I just want to encourage you, you have a heavenly father that adores you and is on this, and can I pray with you? And and sometimes, you know, that'll be the way I respond to people, because I want to just sow the seed before I pray. So, good thought. Mm -hmm. So good. Hey, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. That's Dave Buring. You can find what we talked about today and tons of really great resources at lionshare.org. You should definitely check out a discipleship journey. If you've never been in a discipling relationship and you've really never, never come to an understanding of who God is and therefore who you are, um, a discipleship journey is a great resource for that. You can find it all at lionshare.org. We'll be right back. Yeah, thank you to those of you who are texting in this morning. The text line is open, 877-933-2484. Yes, thank you to those of you who are acknowledging that the uh, experiences that people have had at the hands of quote-unquote earthly fathers, um, abuse, abandonment, violence, trauma, on and on and on. Those are such horrible misrepresentations of the father heart of God. They are real trauma. They require um, real attention. And so in those spaces and places where we have the honor of um, living alongside and in relationship to a person who has experienced um, that kind of misrepresentation of God as father and the father heart of God, um, our our first you know our first response um is tender mercy tender mercy um to demonstrate and to bear witness to the reality of who god is not the misrepresentations of him um by by those who claim to be christ followers but clearly were not um and so grief and grieving with but then also acknowledging that god redeems like god redeems um and he's there to make whole and to love and to fulfill. So thank you for engaging in that conversation this morning. The Supreme Court um, has a number of cases still pending before it. We're expecting those rulings today um, and this coming Thursday. But we're going to circle back and spend some time with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College talking about the Dobbs decision, which was issued on Friday. What do we need to know in order to speak intelligently about the decision today in our conversations with others, and how are we going to do so in ways that honor Jesus? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Dr. Adam Carrington is joining us now from Hillsdale College. We are going to unpack some of the pieces and parts of the Dobbs decision in which the Supreme Court um, reversed a precedent set in 1973 related to abortion in the United States of America. Adam, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Always for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, maybe initial reactions, um, maybe thoughts after a couple of days. Um, you know, let's make sure that we at least pull whatever the first thread is that you want to pull today. Right. Uh, I guess uh, I react on two levels. Uh, I was obviously not terribly surprised since we had had the leak, although you never know if a vote's going to change. And uh, judicially, uh, as a student of the court, um, it was just a fascinating day because this is the biggest case to drop really in my lifetime and uh, in many of the li- in the lifetime of many listeners. So uh, being able to be a part of that and look at that was uh, interesting on that level. But uh, as as a believer and someone just who who to be honest is is pro life. Um, I uh, uh, it was a day that I had hoped and prayed for and and had thought may never come even uh, in, in the time I was alive and thinking about what a triumph it was for the people that have worked their entire lives to get to this point and then thinking about you know what do we do next I think those are the thoughts that have come 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 through as as a scholar of the court but also as as a believer who's um, who, who really believes in in the sanctity of life. Is it okay to, right, celebrate, right? Because there's this part of me that, you know, I want to, I want to celebrate that um, the efforts put forward by Christians and others to protect um, the life of, uh, of the most innocent among us. Um, but I also recognize there's just such great pain related to this entire conversation. I recognize that there are millions and millions of women who are Christians who have had abortions. Um, I recognize that when a decision like this is made, it does um, prick the conscience of some who assumed that because something was legal, it was moral. I mean, do you, so is it okay for me to, as a, as a person concerned about life, for me to celebrate, but then how do I appropriately do that? Um, recognizing that it, it's not as if abortion has been made illegal. It's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's been returned to the states to decide. Right. And, and that's where there needs to be caution in, I think the celebr. I guess there's two cautions that I think you bring up in the celebrations. One is, uh, I'll take the second first that you, that this is a victory in the sense of it allows for us as citizens and as voters to be part of the conversation again and to make the case for life with our neighbors and to do so well. And that's where I think the way you celebrate, I think it's perfectly appropriate to celebrate. I think this was a great day in American history. It's it's appropriate to say that if you took a step in the direction of justice, a major step in the direction of justice in American history, that it is appropriate to mark it with joy um, but I think there's a difference between that and gloating, right? Uh, there's a difference between that and savaging one's opponents in your 
uh, in your joy. And I think that's where you say uh, we think this is a major victory for the unborn. This is a major way that um, uh, a, a, a pro- uh, an evil in America has been uh, mitigated, not ended, but mitigated. And we know that we're all complicit in evil at certain points because of sin and that we want to have compassion and love for those who are hurting. We want to take care of those mothers who are in trouble. We want to persuade those lovingly who disagree and are hurt by this opinion and show them that uh, we really truly honestly believe that this is for the greater good. This is for justice for an oppressed group and that we want to um, uh, come alongside all people of goodwill to try to reason with them in the future to to, to build on this victory. I think that's, uh, I, I guess, really, when I say don't gloat, it's um, the virtue that celebration must come with humility. And I think uh, Christians of all people should know how to celebrate humbly. We celebrate what Christ did for us uh, on the cross humbly because we had nothing to do with it. And I think there should be an element of saying this is God's work that we had only a small part and a part that he worked in us to do. Um, so I think humility is appropriate here and a way to celebrate appropriately. Sometimes, you know, the court makes a decision and then later on it makes a different decision. So that is not uh, unprecedented in uh, in the history of the United States of America. The the Supreme Court has decided things and then decided those things differently um, later in time. Um, but there was a novelness, there was some uniqueness about the 1973 Roe decision. Um, can you can you unpack that a little bit for us? Because I do think that understanding. The road decision in 1973 helps us understand why the court did what it did now. Right. Roe really became a special case. It was treated differently as precedent, meaning a previously decided binding decision of the court. It was really treated differently than any other decision. And those rules, that those special rules to try to protect it, where the court bent over backwards and really didn't do anything it had done in any other case, really started to distort um, how the court was operating. It started to make every battle about a judicial nominee about Roe. It started to make every uh, debate in other cases about precedent a proxy war for Roe. And uh, and a lot of that was even people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was quoted by Alito in the majority opinion, is saying Roe's got a lot of problems in its reasoning. It was really because Roe was such a weak decision to begin with, even among admitted among even people who uh, believe that the decision came out the right way, that um, uh, that that all they had to do was lean on on precedent. And so I think what one thing the court was saying in overturning it, and in overturning it in a way where they weren't vindicating the right to life by saying you can't have abortions, they were saying it's returned to the states, as you said, is that this has really hurt our ability to do our job well, because we've made it a case that gets rules unlike any other, and that's not the way a court's supposed to operate. They're not supposed to make special rules for special issues, and it's made us worse as a court and worse as an American people that it's operated this way for the last 50 years, and it's just proved unworkable. That was a big thing the court pushed was us policing this 
for the last 50 years has just not worked. It's really made things worse. We need to get out of it if the American people are ever going to come to a conclusion about what they think about life in the womb. And I think that's something to emphasize about what this opinion was trying to do and what it said it was trying to do. I want to um, I want to fish around for a minute, Adam, in this in the role of the court. Um, could you remind us what the role of the Supreme Court is? Because they're not like it's supposed to be the moral arbiter um, of of all things in the culture. What what is the role of the Supreme Court? That's a great question to be asking today, because you're right that people sometimes look and even politicians look to the court as the answer of all moral and legal questions. And there are things left to the people to decide. There are things left to politicians, elected uh, elected officials to decide. And what a court is supposed to do is to take the laws that the American people pass either directly through a constitution or through their elected representatives and apply those laws to the to, to controversies. There, there are controversies about what the law means, about who's guilty and innocent, about what the wording of a law means, because language we know can always be vaguer than we wish it was. And that's their job is to resolve disputes about what the law means. And in the end, what they're trying to do is uphold the rule of law and uphold the rule of law as passed by the people and the people's representatives. And that means there are a lot of the moral and ethical questions about what's just and unjust is not the court's job. It's the people and their representatives. And then the court's job is to apply that morality as given to them in the law. And I think that's uh, something where uh, we can be thankful for how much justice is in our own constitution, that the judges can uh, for so, so much follow what justice is biblically and morally uh, if they're following the constitution itself. But ultimately, their, their, their task morally is downstream from us. And one thing they said in this opinion is we have uh, jumped the stream, so to speak, and tried to be the moral arbiters on here. Uh, you, the American people, have that responsibility. So this is actually a massive, um, grave responsibility the court has given back to the American people that we as citizens should take very seriously. It is now our job to, for the most part, decide this question of great moral and, and ethical import, of great uh, uh, import to the 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 uh, uh, the importance of, of human life. So uh, we now have a task that we didn't have before, and it, it's a big deal. Uh, we, we have to be thinking morally and biblically, and it has serious consequences how we do now. Okay, I actually think, Adam, that's the crux of the matter. I think the people who are so outraged and angry are angry that the decision is now placed back on the individual and and the and the community closest to the individual i actually think that is what people are so uh, like i i mean they're they're it's a it's an anger that is so pronounced it's just it's almost hard to watch videos of um but i think that's the anger people don't want to take personal responsibility they don't want to um actually be the one who is responsible to make the moral choice about um, the life or death of another person. They want it to be 
legal everywhere, paid for by the government so that they can then say, well, obviously it's, you know, it's okay and it's right because, you know, it's protected as a right. And no, it's not. It's not. You actually are going to stand in judgment before a living God in relationship to this particular issue. And so I'm thankful that the Supreme Court has said, you know what, we went beyond um, what was our right role in 1973. And we're now saying, no, you know what, this decision is it does actually belong closer to the individual. Um, and and we're not going to judge the law. We are going to judge how the law is applied. So yep, I, I think I think, I think it's a, I think, right. I think it's a it's a good day. All right. Adam Carrington and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Um, we are going to turn a uh, pivot just for a moment to the conversation about another decision of the Supreme Court in relationship to guns and the president's uh, signing bipartisan gun reform into law. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Uh, The question before us right now is going to be a conversation about the Second Amendment. Um, So, Adam, remind us what the Second Amendment actually says, because I do think that we, like, imagine that we know what the Second Amendment says, and in reality, maybe we don't. (laughs) Yes, I I can read you the full text, because it's only one sentence. Uh, It says, a a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So that's the full text. Could you read the beginning part again? (laughs) Right. A a well-regulated militia being necessary to the— Yeah, what is that? What what is a well-regulated militia? What, What is that? Right. And that's part of the debate, because the, the, the debate is, is this a state right to have an organized military or is it an individual right to own guns? And a lot of it depends upon whether you believe the original militias that were organized at the, the founding era when this amendment came out, were they the uh, organized state uh, militaries or were they c- the community at large that it could be called out at any point to defend the community in, in a war? And if, if you believe that it was an organized militia, then it's uh, it, it seems to be more of a state power. And that's what many people have argued on one side, whereas on the other side, they've said, well, the militia was uh, the people at large, and therefore they had a right to self-defense in owning a gun that could be organized or unorganized at different points. I ho- hope that makes sense of a lot of complicated debate that's gone around this. Um, uh, that, that, that's the essence, I think, of the argument is, is this an individual right or a collective right? Okay. So what um, was the issue before the Supreme Court in relationship to gun restrictions specifically in New York, and then how does that decision affect others? Yes, and and one thing one needs to know is that the court in 2008 and 2010 said, we believe ultimately this is an individual right and that the militia right is built upon the individual right. So knowing that in the background, they made a very limited decision back then that you could own a handgun in the home for self-defense when the militia or the police can't get there. Um, they, but they said nothing since then, and it's caused a lot of confusion. And finally, they took up another case, and this case was the question, can you care, do you have any right 
to carry outside the home for self-defense purposes. And the narrow outcome that the court came up with was, yes, you do have a right to keep and bear arms, bear them outside the home for the purpose of self-defense if you get in a situation where you need to protect yourself because the police or, or other protection isn't there. And that's basically what they what they found. Now, I think what makes this a big case was they also created a standard for judging whether a limitation or a gun regulation is constitutional or not, because there'd been so much confusion in lower courts where judges basically did what they wanted on it. And it basically creates a presumption in favor of gun owners and gun users where the government then has to prove that in the text and history of the United States, there was a there were limits on firearms that are like the, the regulation that the state wants to do now. So it creates a standard which I think strengthens the individual right to own guns. At the same time, the court really did try to balance and say, there's lots of gun regulations we think can be upheld. There's lots of gun regulations that we think are very reasonable and we wouldn't touch. Uh, in fact, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion emphasizing that. And that matters because Kavanaugh really has become the fifth vote in 5-4 cases, as, as, wrote, as, the, as Dobbs showed. So uh, the court was trying to strike a balance. And the debate is, where is the balance between uh, uh, an someone protecting themselves with a gun and regulating people so they don't harm others with guns. And given the shootings and other things that we have been uh, cursed by over the last few months, that is a decision that is not just the court talking about it, but the rest of the country trying to say, what's the proper balance for this so that there's proper safety in, for, for all people? And uh, obviously a lot of debate about whether the court got that one right. All right. Uh, the president has uh, signed into law on Saturday um, – probably the most significant reform bill in decades related to um, gun laws in America. Um, the House passed that legislation, that bipartisan legislation on Friday. The president signed it into law on Saturday. It's really um, about restricting gun access for uh, young buyers or the youngest of buyers, uh, domestic violence offenders, and then others who could pose a risk to communities. And that is the red flag part of this. And that's probably the one that is of um, of greatest concern to people who are concerned about their own individual civil liberties. Right. And I would say reading the opinion that just came out to bring the two stories together and looking at what I've been able to of the bill that or the law now that they're not in conflict, actually. The, the, what the, nothing the court decided precludes anything that's in this bill. And some of its dicta, so things that aren't controlling, but that it was at least co the court was commenting on, said, uh, we think there are lots of reasonable restrictions on who can own a gun based on their criminal history. A thing that Justice Thomas, that wrote the majority opinion, kept saying is um, law-abiding normal citizens— they have this basic right. The moment you step out of that and break the law, hurt others, um, have reason that you may hurt yourself that's provable, uh, that changes the calculus on whether you – how you're allowed to exercise or whether you're allowed to exercise this right. So this is a significant gun legislation. I think it touched on in the best way the parts of 
gun regulation that a bipartisan group of senators and House members could agree on. And I, I, I think it's it's certainly a reasonable move in reaction to what's happened over the last couple of months. We'll see. Is it enough? Does Do other things need to be done? Um, but it, it, I think what it showed was there are instances still where uh, left and right can say we can find some kind of consensus on a contentious issue. And maybe neither of us get everything we want, but we find some common ground to build on. So good. So helpful. Adam, as always, thank you so much. That's Dr. Adam Carrington. You can find him at Hillsdale College. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. What does it actually say and what does it not say? That's the um, that that is going to be something I'm going to encourage us to be asking today in relationship to the decision of the Supreme Court, new new laws that have been passed um, and the word of God. There you go. What does it actually say and what does it not say? The Bible doesn't say everything that people imagine it says. And so when somebody says, well, you know, God says da 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 da. Um, I actually think that it's incumbent upon us to say, you know, where does God say that? Where does God's word reflect that? And does that reflect the character and the ways of God? Are we reading that in context? Are we reading that uh, as a part of the full scope of what we know about the redemptive arc of God in human history? We got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.